Has anybody ever been to it on a trip or to an event that had poor or no clear leadership? Anybody ever show up something that was chaos? Anybody ever been there? How was that? Was that fun? Did you enjoy yourself? No, mostly not. I, I want to tell a quick story. You guys, um, I was actually here uh, serving a student pastor when this happened. Uh, you guys know, some of you know this. I've been twice on a mission trip to Mexico. Um, one time I went to Oaxaca, Mexico. I got very sick because I ate plantains that I, I shouldn't have eaten, uh, but they, they were offered to us. And I wanted to be a gracious uh, person. and I got real sick for one night and had... Uh, it was a terrible night. Um, the second time I went to a place called Jalapa, Mexico, which is near Veracruz. We took a team of 27 people, uh, served for a week. It was, man, it was just, uh, God was doing great things. It was beautiful. The leadership there, um, and, I, and I, I, I'm not being kind of saying, they were just very low level leadership, right? It was very kind of hands-off, let's we'll do stuff. So the, the food plan for our team while we were there was just eat food you can buy on the street. And um, for most... American people, that's a dangerous thing to do, right? Uh, for most people, that, that, can, that can lead to some, some illness and stuff like that. And we just, he, and this, our, our, our leader there was like, oh, no, it's fine. I've been doing this for a while. You're fine. You'll, you'll, <laughs> you'll be okay. Long story short, we got to the end of our uh, eight days there or something like that. And I started feeling pretty bad. Started feeling real sick. Uh, I ended up going to, <laughs> went to a doctor and uh, the, the, by doctor, what it is, it's a pharmacy and you just walk downstairs and you tell them your symptoms and my translator tells them and she says, okay, and she, I, I'm, I'm giving the English version here. Uh, she says that, you know, I, I'm, I'm obviously got food poisoning and I need to get some, some medicine for this. Uh, and so she hands me a paper. I go upstairs to the main part of the pharmacy and they, <laughs> they hand me a vial, a syringe or two vials and a syringe and instructions in Spanish. And I was like, I, what? <laughs> <laughs> what, do I, what do I do here? Um, and so uh, luckily, uh, Kelsey Morton was with me there. She's a nurse. And uh, so I show it to her and she's like, oh, that's Rosefin. I know what that is. <laughs> it's a very strong antibiotic. And uh, then she looked at the needle. She's like, hey, this is actually for horses. Uh, this is going to hurt. <laughs> it's a big needle. <laughs> I was at a point, though, that I, I mean, it didn't matter. I mean, she could have literally said, I have to inject this with a sword. I'd be like, go. I was so sick. It was awful. So she, uh, <laughs> she gives me this shot. I'm sitting here. I'm slowly getting better. Well, then suddenly our whole team starts dropping like flies, right? This is the day before we're leaving, and everyone starts getting sick with this very sickness. Um, and it's bad. It's, if, if you want to look it up, it's something called Shigella. And um, it's, it's traced by the CDC. They want to know where it is because it's highly contagious and very, very bad. Uh, and we all got it. 26 of 27 people ended up with this uh, case of Shigella. And it lasts for like three or four weeks of feeling real bad. <laughs> I won't go details. Um, anyways, it was, it was just, it was awful. Uh, and we got to the uh, flight at the time of us leaving. <laughs> now, again, in Mexico, we didn't know we had Shigella <laughs> or that we had, what we had was highly contagious. We thought we all just got the same food poisoning. And so I had this pep talk with the whole team right before we left. I was like, guys, you feel miserable. And I know it. And they looked awful, right? They, they looked like they, we all looked like we were about to die. I was like, listen, I know you feel terrible, but I need you to put on the best face you got and get on this plane. And I, cause our first stop was in Houston, Texas. And I said, look, I'll stay with, I'll stay in Texas with you as long as you need. If we need to get to a hospital in Texas, I'll stay there, but please let's get on this first flight and get there. So you need to put on a good face. I don't want any of this stuff. I, you know, no, no, no looking sick. You can look tired. Don't look sick. Get on the plane. We get on a plane, and then once we realized uh, later what was we were all infected, I was like, "Oh, we infected two full planes full of people with a very terrible illness." How kind of us! Um, this was poor leadership, right? 
this is poor leadership in, in, uh, all over the place. We, we, uh, we didn't have good instructions. We, we were kind of figuring things out. And that was just part of the trip anyways. There's there other things that went wrong with this uh, one trip we went on. It's funny, Ashley, uh, on, the, on a Sunday morning while we were gone, uh, got up here and asked for prayer for our whole team because we were sick. She got sent a picture of me, <laughs> which is probably not good because I didn't look good in that picture. Um, I, 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 I felt terrible. But poor leadership is something that can really destroy almost anything, isn't it? God has designed how the church is to be led. And the biblical model is not practiced in many churches today because we like to look like the world. Do you know that? We would prefer to find our leadership models, our our model for how to do church or how to be church outside of these walls at businesses because that makes us feel good. We'd rather do that than look and see what the word says and say, I want to be as much like this as possible. So we're going to study today uh, something that's going to be so much fun. I've been, I'll be honest, uh, Brian says he can always tell when I'm anxious because I start talking faster at the beginning and I get (laughs) to it quicker. The title today, we're going to look at what is an elder. And so we're going to be walking through this office of elder that has been absent in the church for a very long time. And we're going to talk about why it was in the, uh, why it was in the early church, why it's in the Bible, why it disappeared, and why God has commanded churches to be led in this manner. So if you want to, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 20. We're going to start reading in verse 17, and then we'll skip ahead to 26 and, uh, after we read 17. Um, and we'll go through this. So I'm going to read verse 17 for you. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So this is Paul. He is, uh, he's walking through things. He's at the end of his journey. He actually tells them at the end of this chapter that this is the last time they're ever going to see him because he knows that he is coming to an end of his ministry. Um, he knows this is happening. They're never going to see his face again. So he's given these last, uh, this last set of instructions to the group of elders at the church at Ephesus. It might seem like a strange verse to start with, right? Because it doesn't really have a ton of content, it might seem like. But it depicts a pattern that is found throughout Scripture. Anytime you read in the Bible, if you see a New Testament church where the leadership is described, it is always described this way. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, this is a pattern um, that I believe uh, depicts a healthy biblical church. And when this pattern is not followed by a church, I believe it is set up for disaster. So first of all, he says that uh, he... he sent to Ephesus and called the elders. That word elders is the Greek word presbyteros. And that literally means, literally, old man, right? So this can mean this. But even for the Jewish people and for the the Christians of this time, it became an office. It became a position. It became a role that someone would have that had nothing to do with age. It had to do with the the, um, ability a person had. So this is a person of responsibility and authority in matters of socio-religious concerns, both in Jewish and Christian societies. These are the men that God has called to lead, teach, correct, and have authority over the church. One thing we need to understand here is, first of all, the word elders is plural. So that means that there are multiple elders every time. Uh, I'm going to walk through a few things there's not. There is no model in the entire New Testament for a one-man-on-top leadership structure. 
Um, I think I talked about this whenever we talked through some of the, the deacons, maybe members, that uh, the, the, the role of senior pastor being the one guy that's untouchable at the very top was created by men when we looked at successful business uh, businesses a hundred years ago or so and said, hey, all these companies are doing so well because they have one guy at the very top making all the decisions by himself. He's the smartest one. Let's, put, let's do that in the church because then we'll succeed. We'll get more people and more money. That's success, right? So the church followed that model. Guess what that did? Set people up for disaster. It's a man-made model. And it set men up for failure. Do you know how many senior pastors have ended in failure? Whether morally or have lost their families or have made poor decisions or led poorly because they stood above all and had no one to talk to or share responsibility or have accountability with. That is a dangerous, unbiblical model for the church. Second of all, there is no model for simple democracy in the entire New Testament where everything is voted on. Did you know that? There's no model for that in the whole New Testament. In fact, in the entire New Testament, you're not going to find very many votes at all. And definitely inside of decisions for the church, you find very few of them. And votes can be very dangerous. The reason they can be dangerous is because what you're saying is we're going to have a mob mentality where majority gets to push their way to get what they want. Preferences come before biblical principles. Does that make sense? Let's walk through some of these. This is some of the parts I'm nervous about. If you read Numbers 13 and 14, you're going to see a popular vote in the, uh, in the Old Testament, right? God called the uh, uh, people of Israel. They're finally coming out and they're going to go take the promised land, right? They're going to go in there. They're going to take Canaan. This is what God had given to them. Now, were they supposed to be the ones to take it for themselves? Were they relying on themselves to do it? No. God says, I'm going before you. I'm the one fighting. I'm, doing, I'm giving you this land. Go take it, right? So they get there. They're going around and they send uh, 12 spies to go out and check out Canaan, right? 12 guys to go out and look around, check this place out, see what we're getting ourselves into. These 12 men go out and look around. They come back after 40 days. And what was their report? Anybody remember? They brought some fruit and said, hey, there's grapes that are inside your head. And everybody's like, that's cool. I like grapes. And there's people that are so big, we look like grasshoppers. We cannot win this fight, right? You have two people, Joshua and Caleb, who fight and say, no, no, no. God said that we want to go, that, or that he's given it to us and we should go take this land. Uh, and so let's let it go. And all 10 others say, absolutely not. It would be better for us to go back to Egypt and die in slavery, right? At least they fed us well. At least we don't have to fight giants. We don't have to do Let's go back this way. So they had a popular vote of 10 to 2. Guess what the consequence of that vote was? 40 years in the wilderness. And then all of the voters never saw the promised land. You know what they said? They said, hey, we don't want to go do this because then what will happen is we'll die and our kids will never see the promised land. They'll get killed too. And instead, God makes the opposite happen. He makes them go out in the wilderness and all of that entire generation dies before uh, Israel is able to go into the promised land. And it's only their children who get to see the promised land. So this is one of the sections where you see popular vote go a wrong way. In 1 Samuel 8, Samuel's getting old. He's the... Uh, he is the uh, prophet for uh, the nation at the time. He's speaking for God. He's teaching. He's doing the stuff, doing great things. Uh, his sons were not so good, uh, and they're about to step up. So this is, there's, there's a whole bunch here. There's a lot of stuff. But the, uh, the people of Israel looked at it and said, you know what? We're not big fans of our, of our way of government anymore, right? 
We don't like the fact that God's our king and you speak for him and we just do what you, you know, we do what God says. We're not, we're not a fan of this because everyone else has kings and their kings look awesome. They're powerful and strong and they speak and they build armies and they're tough. And we want to look like them. We want to be, we want a king like the other nations and we're rejecting God's kingship over us. It was a popular vote. The consequence of this was they received kings and the cost of those kings, losing money, land, children, and friends to the, to the demands of those kings. And God said it would happen. He told Samuel, hey, you know what their kings are going to do? Take their children for them, from them, make them work in the war. He's going to take their daughters and make them uh, work in his kingdom. He's going to take their money and use it for taxes. He's going to take their crops and use it for his food and feed his people. He's going to take all their stuff. And he did, right? Their kings did do this. The other popular vote that I found inside of the uh, New Testament is found in Matthew chapter 27. Jesus is arrested and he's brought out and uh, Pilate constructs a plan where he's thinking, hey, I'm going to, these people were paid silver to get Jesus thrown into jail. So let's, uh, maybe since they were just, you know, mistreated, maybe since they were bribed, maybe they can have a rational thought at this point and we can just, uh, you know, have something, let's let's let a popular vote work and let's get this guy set free because he's obviously innocent. So Pilate does this thing where he, there's a tradition he had of setting one person free every, every so often, right? And he comes out and he says to the, to the gathering Jewish people, hey, I'm going to set one of your prisoners free. You got Jesus who claims to be Christ. That's the sin you're putting against him. That's, you know, that he's, you know, he's, he's saying that he's the Messiah. And that's, you know, I, I get it. You guys don't like that. And I've got Barabbas, a terrible, awful criminal. Who did Pilate think they would pick? Barabbas. Who should they have picked? Jesus, they say, they, 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 or no, sorry, I'm saying this wrong. He thought they'd pick Jesus, right? He thought, of course, like criminal versus guy who just is, is saying things wrong versus somebody who's doing, of course, they're going to pick Jesus, set Jesus free. Like that's, this makes sense. But instead they say, nope, you can set a criminal in the streets so long as you murder Jesus. The consequence of this vote was the only righteous one, the son of God, was murdered by the very people he came to save. This does not mean that the church is not responsible for what happens in its gatherings, right? Uh, Jesus, in his letters to the the church of the New Testament, hold the church responsible, along with its leaders, for letting things happen. uh, Paul holds the whole Corinthian church accountable for letting things happen, go on there, right? There's there's responsibility in the church to take ownership for what's allowed to be taught, right? In Galatians, it's, man, I can't believe you're allowing yourselves to be taught things that are wrong, that are not biblical. So there is a responsibility the church has to guard and make sure that only the word is being spoken. But there is no model for a one man on top and there is no model for simple democracy that, is, that does not exist in the entire New Testament. The clear biblical model of leadership is for a plurality of elders to lead the church under the authority of Christ and his word. So these elders are the ones that God says, I'm calling these men to lead the church. And they do it under the authority of Christ and under the authority of scripture. So only scripture can be what they they stand there. It's their defense and their everything. These elders are appointed by pastor teachers that God has brought to the churches. We'll talk about that difference at some point um, in a couple of weeks. 
I want to read two sections where this happens. In Acts 14, 23, And when they had appointed elders, this is Paul, appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then Titus 1, 5, Paul is telling Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So these elders, how they're selected is the pastor teachers that God has given to the church are to select them and say, here's people who are qualified, capable, able, and are good for the job and good for the church. And you appoint them and select them and they come forward and then those men lead the church. The word church, the word ecclesias, this is a congregation of Christians implying interacting membership. All right, quick reminder, I've said this a ton. The church is not a building it is, the, it is the disciples that Christ has remade into his own new creations, right? The building is not the church. Never was, never has been. In fact, churches uh, did not have buildings for a long time. They met wherever they could. The building is not the important part. The people are. So while elders in this passage are plural, the church is not. There's one church in a multiple plurality of elders. This is, the, this is the pattern for every biblical church. He continues and writes, actually, you need to skip ahead. I, I, I skipped here. So that's the, the setup. That's verse 17. Now we're going to go uh, 26 through uh, 31. Paul writes, therefore, I testify to you on this day. He's talking to the elders that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So this is God speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus as one, uh, as one of the pastor teachers that God has called there. Again, we're going to get into the difference between pastor teacher and elder at some point in the similarities because there is overlap. Uh, all pastor teachers are going to be elders, but not all elders are going to be pastor teachers. Um, so he says, I've con- I-, I testify to you. So that word is to make a serious declaration on the basis of presumed uh, personal knowledge. It's a legal phrase, and he's saying, I'm giving you my sworn oath of something that I'm testifying is absolutely true. And he says, I am innocent of the blood of all. What an interesting phrase, right? Uh, What would make someone guilty of the blood of others in the church? Well, according to this passage, it would be that it's someone who's afraid to teach God's word. All of it. Even the parts that no one wants to hear. Has anybody ever read something in the Bible and felt uncomfortable? If you've been here for long, you've heard lots of it, right? Like, ah, what do I do with that? But this is what it means to be innocent of the blood of all. Saying, I will give every last bit of the word of God teach through it every chance I can. An example I thought of is this. If I take one of my children and I start teaching them to drive and and I'm not letting them drive yet, but I'm showing them what I'm doing. And I say, okay, now you're ready to drive. Let's just, let's pick, uh, let's pick Jude out for this. I think he's upstairs working right now. So, uh, hi Jude. Um, so Jude's 12. He's going to turn 13 in uh, December. I'm going to have a teenager. That's insanity. Um, so Jude, let's say I've, I've shown him driving. I've shown him the stuff. And I'm like, hey, you want to take the car for a spin? What is Jude going to say? <laughs> yeah. And he gets in and he knows I, I've shown him. You turn the key on. You pull the lever down, put it in the D, 
push the little pedal that means go, and he starts driving. What if I never taught him what the brakes were? What's going to happen? He's going to crash, right? This will happen. Hopefully he's okay, but he's going to crash. This is not even a question. He is going to crash. Whose fault will that wreck be? Mine. Because I failed to teach him what the brakes are. So what Paul's saying is, I am responsible to teach everything the Bible says as best I can, to walk through it as best I can, even the parts that are uncomfortable, even the parts that are hard to say, even the parts that make it seem like I, like that are hard for me in particular to teach. I cannot not teach the word or else I am guilty of leaving you out there without knowing how to use the brakes. He says, I did not shrink from uh, declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I, I love this. That's a word that means to hold oneself back from doing something with the implication of some fearful concerns. Anybody think it's uh, tough to teach the Bible sometimes? Go back and read 1 Corinthians 7 again and tell me that wasn't difficult. If you don't remember it, it was the... <laughs> never mind. <laughs> it was about spouses not uh, depriving themselves. Um, there you go. Yeah. Anybody think that was difficult? Was that uncomfortable for me? Was I awkward and weird and all that? Yeah. Is it God's word? So we teach it. Is everything in the Bible easy to hear and just lovely and uplifting? No, there's a ton of it that says you are a sinner in need of changing by Jesus Christ. Do we always enjoy what the Bible says? I don't. When it calls me out on the things I'm struggling with, I don't enjoy it. It's hard for me. It's difficult. But it doesn't change. It has to be spoken. Paul writes in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So again, this is Paul speaking from a pastor standpoint. He says, and I, I think we have to understand this. Pastors cannot seek the approval of people, even the people they are called to lead and seek the approval of God. You can't seek both. Does that make sense? And I, I'll be honest, that is a struggle for me. You want to know why? Does it feel good to be liked? Does it feel good to be disliked? Sometimes, you know what teaching God's word will do? Get you very disliked. But I have to read that verse on a regular basis. Who am I desiring to please? Whose approval am I most after? God's or anyone else's? Because here's the thing about people's approval. It's fickle, untrustworthy, unobtainable in the long term, and unworthy of pursuit. I could please you today and you could still get angry again tomorrow. Anybody have somebody like that in your life? Or no matter what you do, it's not enough. Anybody have some of those? I like the awkward looks. God's approval is based on perfect perspective, goodness, holiness, and love. And it is worth our lives pursuit. I have to ask God for strength each week to teach his word to his people. 
even when it's uncomfortable, even when it will offend, even if it costs me my job, because I cannot be ashamed of God's word, no matter what. So he said, I didn't shrink. I didn't, I wasn't afraid of your response to God's word. I didn't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Paul was teaching the church at Ephesus and their elders in particular, all of the word. And that's why I typically preach expositionally. So what that means is that's why I typically say, let's pick a book of the Bible and go through it. You want to know why? Because when you do that and you say, let's go through 1 Corinthians, I don't get to skip chapter 7 or chapter 15 when there's things that are uncomfortable or difficult or hard to teach, right? I don't get to skip it. And so when we teach something, books of the Bible at a time, we're going to have to go through stuff that is difficult to hear, difficult to understand, or sometimes very convicting. And I, as long as God has me here, we will work through every book we possibly can. Now, you guys have seen my pace. It takes me a long time. So <laughs> I, it's going to take a few decades for me to make it through the whole thing. Um, I hope I have it. Because that's what God's called us to do, right? Then he gives some instructions to these elders to what they are to do and be at the church. Okay, so let's read this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Okay, so this is the first instructions for what an elder does. What is an elder? First of all, they're to pay careful attention to the flock. That is a word that means to be in a continuous state of readiness, to learn of any future danger, need, or error, and to respond appropriately. An elder is a leader in the church who vigilantly watch, watches out for anything that would harm himself or the church. So the elder watches himself first because there, because there is no temptation that is beyond anyone. Did you know that? There's no temptation that is beyond anyone. We are all human. Never live in the self-righteous state of believing someone else has done something that you could never struggle with. Because you could. But he also stands guard over the whole church, ready to defend her against any harm. Are there things in this world that would harm the church? Absolutely, right? Look around. There's all kinds of things that would harm the church in this world. Has Satan stopped his battle against the church? Has he given up and said, ah, I'm just going to stop fighting them? Nope. He's still very active in trying to destroy churches. Has the church itself ever, deci- ever desired things that were destructive for it? Yes. Again, look around today or read history. The church has constantly desired things that were destructive. It says that they to pay careful attention to the flock. This is a, a word that means the flock of sheep. Uh, what do we know about sheep? <laughs> they're not smart. Oh, they're not, are they? What happens to a sheep when it's unattended? When it's just left to roam? It wanders and then what? It dies. Sheep cannot function unattended. They can't. What happens when a sheep is hunted and there's no one there to protect it? It dies. They have no defense mechanisms. They are helpless, dumb animals. God constantly refers to the church, to Christians, to people like us throughout all of the the New Testament as both sheep and children. Do we look at ourselves that way very often? 
No, I think I'm a grown-up. I'm a grown man and I know what I'm doing. And God says, you are a child. You are still a child. You are a sheep. And you need absolute uh, care and tending to to live the life I've called you to live. So elders are part of who God says. So the chief shepherd is Jesus Christ. Amen? Then he says, I'm going to give you some under shepherds. We're going to read about that next week as we continue the study. That are going to also keep watch over you because as sheep and children, you are vulnerable and in danger constantly of being harmed. And he calls them overseers. So that's a, uh, another word and it means a, a guardian, a supervisor or a keeper. God has called these elders to be the guardians of the church. They constantly look at the word and look at the church and find the discrepancies. So an elder at Clinging Ridge would look and say, here's what the church looks like in the Bible. Here's what we look like now. How are those different? And then how do we fix that? The church is not allowed to be anything less than what the word commands her to be. I want to read that one more time because I think this is important. The church is not allowed to be anything less than what the word commands her to be. And secondly, the church is not allowed to add to God's commands for what the church is, which is legalism, having an attitude that we know better than him. All right, next thing that he's called them to do is to care for this church. This literally means to guide the sheep to food and safety, leading them with with the implication of providing for them. So this means that they're shepherding them. This is the role and job of an elder, to guide the sheep to safety and ensure they eat well. You know what a good elder is going to smell like? What does a good shepherd smell like? Sheep. Good shepherds smell like sheep because they spend time with them. These elders will linger with the sheep, spend time with them where they are. And these elders do this because the church is not his own. It belongs to Christ. Christ purchased the church with his blood. Let's keep reading. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So he says, fierce wolves will come in. I have a fun question. Has anybody, has anybody in here ever met a mean church person? Surely not. Do you know anyone who has attended church for years or even decades, but has shown no fruit of salvation? Are there people who have maybe attended church and maybe even said a prayer that are lost? Is that possible? That's what a wolf is. Someone who pretends to be a sheep of Christ that is not. And they will destroy the church. He says that these wolves aren't even just going to come in from the outside and pretend to be Christians and pretend to be part of the church. They're also going to come from above. Here's a fun one. Just so that we're fair here. Has anybody ever met a mean pastor? You have one. (laughs) do you know any pastors who have abused the, the authority that was given to them 
the most dangerous thing a church can possibly do is allow a wolf into leadership. They will pervert the message of Christ with their own words, their own thoughts, their own opinions, their own preferences, and create their own gospel. And that gospel won't save people. So an elder must protect the church and protect their leadership from wolves who would distort the gospel of Christ, which is the only hope we have for salvation. He then tells them, tells these elders, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. The word be alert means to stay, it literally means stay fully awake, be very awake, have lots of coffee. But it's uh, intended meaning is to be in continuous readiness and alertness to learn. One thing an elder does is to keep watch over the church, guarding her from wolves. Elders must remain constantly vigilant in this because there is no room for sleeping when wolves are prowling. Does that make sense? Who in here thinks that the, uh, the wolf is going to take a break when you want it to? If you're like, hey, I'm, I'm a little tired now. I'm going to go over here and rest. Just leave the sheep alone, please. Anybody think that's a good method of taking care of your sheep? It's not. Says I admonished, remember for three years I, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. That means to advise someone concerning a dangerous, uh, w- concerning the dangerous consequences of something happening or action, of some happening or action, or to, uh, or to rebuke them when this action has already been taken. Guarding the church from, uh, from wolves who would twist the word of God to suit their own needs requires elders to warn and to correct. When we get into qualifications for elders, that'll be in two weeks. We'll see that they are required to know doctrine and to be able to teach it for this very reason. Because an elder's role of guarding the church against wolves means they have to know the Bible well enough to say, that is not biblical. So it can't happen here. I want to say two last statements in closing. The lack of faithful elders in churches today is why wolves outnumber sheep in many churches. Wolves also tend to be much louder than sheep, making it seem like there are more of them than there actually are. Did you know that? Three wolves howling in the woods in the night can sound like an army. And that can make you think that you have no chance. But God's word says, nope, I fight for you. So I want to step back and say this. This disappeared a long time ago in churches. In fact, all Baptist churches originally had elders in their leadership. Did you know that? The very first Southern Baptist Convention uh, president gave a speech saying to all the churches why they needed to go ahead and make sure they had elders appointed in every church. This, is, uh, this has history in Baptist. It has history in every other tradition. It went out of style for one particular reason. We followed the world instead of following Christ. We said the business model of CEO looks good. And we have the front man that can toe the line and be our, our guy that looks in, uh, good in front of people and say the right words. And he failed. So then what we did is, okay, well, then we're going to take the servants of the church, the deacons, and we're going to make them function as elders, even if they're not qualified to be them. Is that biblical? 
No. And then you don't have anybody that's actually serving anymore either. So you lose all of it. If Clinging Ridge is to be a church that looks like the New Testament church, that looks like the church that Christ designed, we must submit to this polity. A church led by elders, served by deacons, and uh, ministered by members. That is the model in the Bible. I want you guys to close your eyes and bow your heads with me as we wrap this up. Again, this is part one. I tried to, this was going to be a three-hour sermon if I did all the things I was going to do. So this is going to be continue next week in part two of what is an elder. First question I want to say is this. Will you pray for Clinging Ridge to continue to become a church that follows Christ's design for her and not anyone else's? Will you pray for that even if it's uncomfortable? Will you pray for that even if it's not your preference? Second of all, will you pray for the elders that God has already prepared for Clinging Ridge? Will you pray for your heart to be quick to follow their leadership and to make their role a joy and not a burden? The last thing I want to say is this. I've had actually several texts and calls and conversations with people over the last week over a burden for family members and loved ones who are lost. Most of them are ones who say they said a prayer at some time, but there's no fruit of the spirit in their lives. And these family members are worried for them saying, I don't see how that's salvation if nothing has ever changed. And the Bible is very clear with that too. Change must come. There is change that comes in your life if Christ makes you a new creation. There's change that comes in your life if the Holy Spirit lives in you. You will look more like Christ if the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. So I just want to beg you this morning and ask you this. If you are one of those people who you look and I say, show me fruit from the the Holy Spirit being in your life and you say, I can't find any. Will you ask God to say, is there true change in my heart? If not, I beg you, even if you have been attending the church for decades, I beg you to surrender to Jesus Christ as your savior today and let him be king of your life because you can't be. Jesus, I pray you call us to be a church that surrenders and submits to you. We don't get to create a church in our image. You have already created, it is yours. You bought it with your own blood and you get to decide what it looks like. Lord, help us to submit to that. God, I pray that as we become what, what is uh, the, as we follow this biblical model for what a church is, as we change to become what you designed, you help us to have soft hearts and we surrender to your word having authority over any preference we might have. God, I do pray for the elders that you have already prepared for Clinging Ridge. And that they would serve and lead and guard well. We love you so much. In your name I pray. Amen. Please stand and let's uh, worship and respond however God leads you.